Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and we've kind of missed a lot here over this last period since we last recorded. The Red Wings have had three games, uh, they won one, they lost uh, once in overtime to Chicago last night, and they also I think lost one to Nashville, I don't think we had covered that game yet. So a full series and a half that we have uh, to catch up on here, we will certainly do that. Um, but overall, Prashant, I mean, the kind of the, the theme that's been emerging right now for the Red Wings is is they have seemed to find a little bit of their stride here. And even though they're still not really getting the wins regularly, they're playing much better hockey than they were earlier this year. Yeah, I think you have to be somewhat encouraged by how the process at least looks. You know, Jeff Blaschel likes to talk about the process and that if you continue to play way, you know, in a certain way, in a certain fashion over time, you're going to get those victories kind of trending your direction. And and I think the Red Wings have certainly done that in the second half of the season thus far. I mean, their first eight games, pretty brutal, but to be fair, they had a pretty tough first eight games. You had Carolina twice, you had Columbus, a team that's always been difficult for them twice. And then you had Dallas twice in there. I mean, you're talking about uh, an Eastern conference finalist and then, uh, you know, the, the Western conference champion last year, so those are, you know, certainly tough opponents. But since they've been able to, uh, you know, move past that and get into their stretch where they've had a lot of Florida, Nashville, another round of Chicago, a couple games against Tampa, I think they've certainly looked uh, a hell of a lot better on the ice. I don't know what you would think there, Max. I, I thought they looked better too. And I actually thought, you know, they, they to me, it looked like they were in control for most of that Chicago game yesterday. And obviously they, they go down 2-0 at the start, but especially as it got late in the game there, once they had tied it up, you know, I really felt like they were really on the cusp of a couple goals on a different, a couple different occasions late in that game. Anthony Mantha came very close to a really nice rush goal. Dylan Larkin almost banks one off of Subban's back. Or, or actually takes one off of Subban's back and puts it in the net late in the game. He doesn't quite go in, and the Red Wings obviously go to overtime and lose. Um, but also, you know, that Nashville series, you know, Nashville, I think it's important to say, uh, did not look has not looked good at all this year, and they look like they may be uh, in the beginning stages of, of a rebuild where they need to tear it down, and, and uh, we may cover that a little bit later on this show. Um, so, you know, you, you take the opponents with a little bit of context, but, you know, Florida also just, uh, went toe to toe with it, with, with Tampa over the weekend. And that's a team the Red Wings have, have been even with, uh, in, in every one of their games with them so far. And so I do think it's a, um, it's a sign of a process that seems to be working. I mean, a couple of different Red Wings have talked about, they had, uh, the, the proverbial players meeting after their, uh, embarrassing loss to Tampa, um, a, a few series back now. And really since that, that time and that meeting, I've had a hard time finding uh, major faults with their five on five game. Obviously, I don't think the power plays still scored them. They're at like over twenty something at this point, um, over their last twenty something at this point. That's still obviously a very major fault. Um, but beyond that, you know, I'm having a hard time finding major quibbles with the game, especially because last night they 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 were generating their u- uh, you know suppressing their usual amount of chances, but also generating a, a pretty healthy number of them. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the stats for the wings over the last nine games or so, their, their expected goals for percentage at five on five is 55%. Like that is, that's up towards where the top 10 teams, top eight teams in the leagues usually sit. If you're running a stretch like that. Now, granted those teams do it over the course of a season, not just a nine, nine game stretch. 
But I mean, just go across the board at the stats at five on five, Detroit's outscoring their opponents by three goals over the last nine games, 17 to 14. They're out shooting them by plus 20 shots. And you've got a five on five expected goals for percentage of 55%. And so the frustrating part is you walk out of that and you won two of those games. Uh, that's it. And so I, I think as a Detroit, you know, fan member of the organization, you and I, you have to watch it and just go, man, it's it's really frustrating because they've looked pretty good uh, for the most part, but just simply aren't getting the rewards. And, you know, to your point, Max, where it's coming down to right now is they're losing these games in really the extra 10 minutes that we that are not played at five on five. I mean, their power play right now hasn't scored in the last 49 minutes. You know, the fascinating stat that uh, I've got for you is their five on five goals for uh, per 60 is 1.9. Their five on four goals for per 60 is 1.9. They are scoring the exact same amount with one extra guy on the ice that they are at five on five right now. Oh my God. You are literally losing these games because you can't score on the power play. So I think that's where you have to step back, be happy about how well they've turned around their five on five play, but also be incredibly frustrated that the margin for them right now is simply you need to find a way to score with an extra guy on the ice. You know, I, I honestly am even a little shocked that it's up at 1.9. I mean, I guess that just the sheer number of minutes has to dictate a healthy percentage of that, but whew, they're all for, is it 25 by now? 26, I think it's 25 like or 26 power plays. I haven't been tracking the exact number of uh, power play chances. I usually like to track minutes since yeah. some power plays can end uh, prematurely or some uh, may run up against the end of a third period or whatnot. So you're right now sitting at about 49 minutes, which works out to roughly 25 full power plays that you have not scored on in a row. Surprisingly, that's not the longest streak the wings have gone on in the last 15 years, but it is certainly very, very noteworthy right now when they are controlling games as much as they are at five and five. Just to to give, I know not all of our audience loves like number heavy stuff and number heavy analysis. So I'm just going to contextualize this because I think you know like that stat is truly astonishing. So what Prashant basically just said is if the Red Wings played the entire game at five on five and there was no special teams, you'd expect them to score about two goals. And that holds up with exactly what we've seen all year. That's literally what they do. They score one or two goals at five on five just about every game. Sometimes they'll pop for three. One time they popped for four. But for the most part, they score two goals just about every game. What he's saying is that even if you reduce that to they played the entire game at five on four, they'd still just score two goals, maybe a little less. Like that is mind blowing. It's just it, it it's fascinating. And if you don't believe me, because please go and double check this, go to evolving hockey, pull it up, go to the team tables and look at five on five. No adjustment. What the goals for per 60 is it's one point nine two and then switch it to five on four, and it's 1.9. They are legitimately scoring the exact same amount of goals when they have an extra guy on the ice. And that's just, that's inexcusable. Uh, because really, if you think about it, you know, less than 20% of the hockey game is played on, uh, on special teams. They are losing these games in the 20% margin, not in the 80% part. They're doing great in the 80% part of late. They just have to find a way to score some goals and stop some when they're shorthanded, which was at least something they were able to accomplish against Chicago. 
And did you say it's expected goals or actual goals? These are actual goals. Actual goals. 1.92 versus 1.9. Because sometimes coaches will, will, will tell you that like the, the public data on expected goals does not match their internal modeling. But, you know, goals are goals. <laughs> These are goals. There is no yeah. expected goals uh, shenanigans here. I, I swear to you, this is exactly the same number. That's crazy. You also had a had a number last night that you threw out about expected goals that when I saw it, I was like, okay, that sounds like an exaggeration, but I went and checked it and I, I didn't I didn't do the tabulation, but it definitely uh you, you mentioned that the Red Wings were averaging about fifty-five percent expected goals, four percentage over their last nine games, and I was like, that can't be it. But you know, here here you go. Last last nine games, sixty-five percent, forty-eight percent, forty-four, fifty-six. 52, 62, 32, that was the bad lightning game, 47, 63, uh, you know, it there's some out, ups and downs yeah. there, but that's, that works out pretty close. To, it works to out to 54.8%. So go ahead and double check that. It's again, it's, it's right there. And so you just have to stop yourself and say, how are they, lo- how did you walk away with only two wins out of these nine games? It's because you couldn't score on the power play and you couldn't stop the other team's power play. You're losing in the margins right now, which again, maybe is encouraging, but at the same time is incredibly frustrating. Well, and you can tell the frustration from all all comers right now, because after every single game, I don't think there's been a game in at least a week, probably two weeks, where we haven't asked Jeff Blaschel and whichever player they, they bring out for us about the power play. I can absolutely tell they're sick of talking about it. I can tell from the fan base that they are sick of hearing about it because you know, in a lot of ways, it's like if, if you and I keep coming on here and say, and, and, and frankly, if the players and coaches, as they have been, keep saying like they think that, you know, that they're, whether it's they're close or whether they're going to work, look at it and try to do something different, you know, we've heard different variations of that. And that frankly reflects the different performances. They've had some games they looked like they probably should have scored on the power play and just didn't. They've had some games where they couldn't enter the zone on the power play. Um, and then you and I come on here and we say, yeah, but if they get the power play figured out, uh, they're going to start getting results. And and I think people hear it and they go, okay, so what's the holdup? Like, you know what the problem is? Like, just do it. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it is a little more complicated than that, but at the same time, it, it's also kind of, you know, I, I don't think the fix is simple, but the, the problem is, is staring you right in the eye there. Yeah. I mean, this is the biggest, most glaring problem that's standing right over you and trying to hit you upside the head with a jackhammer. And it's, it's got to be so frustrating for them. I thought they were turning the corner. If you go back, you know, the second Florida game, uh, you know, the February 9th game, they looked pretty solid. You know, then they looked okay in the two games against Nashville. I thought they were able to generate some chances. And then you go to the Chicago game. They had they had two power plays, four full minutes on the power play. They managed one shot on goal. And they actually gave up a shot against. So you end up with a basically net neutral standpoint here. You manage 0.02 expected goals for, meaning the shot you te- attempted wasn't even that good anyways. So th- there's got to be something that has to be done. And obviously, you know, you and I can speculate all you want. We've talked about handedness. We've done a power play redux here. You know, I've thrown a whole video thread out on, on Twitter. It's obviously not as simple as, as you and I are making it seem to be, but uh, until that gets fixed, until there is a big change to that, it's just going to continue to be the focus because that is the sole reason. Uh, I shouldn't say sole because I think there's a couple other things that go in there, but that is the major reason right now the Wings are not winning more of these games. One of the um, mailbag questions for today is is about that, and, and it's basically let me here, let me find it. We'll just we'll just uh, we're not going to do the whole mailbag right now, but since we're on this topic, I thought you know we we might as well. Um, 
Okay, it's from uh, Marcus Gwynn Newman, and, and he says, It seems the Red Wings power play is the main thing holding him back from winning games. How much of the blame lies with Bilesma, and what does it take for an assistant coach to be removed? You know, we've, we've kind of done this whole coaching conversation. I think this is a very relevant thing because it is true that the power play is Dan Bilesma's responsibility. But what this comes down to basically is uh, the, the question is, is the problem that the Red Wings have a scheme that is just completely ill-fated and has no chance to work? Uh, and, and that could go to their in-zone setup, which is virtually identical to most of the league. Uh, it could go to kind of some philo- philosophical stuff. It could go to, uh, or it could go to like entering the zone. You know, I, I think that's a, a real legitimate question is, are the Red Wings entering the zone well? But it also comes back to personnel. I mean, the thing that gets the most heat in, in my mentions, at least about the Red Wings power play is the drop pass entry. And I get it because the Red Wings aren't that good at it. But, you know, I also watch teams do it all throughout the league and they enter the zone. So I don't think the drop pass is the problem. There's clearly something else about the entry that's, that's not working. And, uh, I don't know that I can see what it is. Like I, that's kind of the reality of it. That's, it's a limitation because, you know, I, I certainly would love to be able to tell you, this is what's, what's going wrong. But all I can do is, is theorize about like, okay, well on this time it was, you know, this was the issue, but you know, it is this really delicate balance of like, you know, I, I can't say that I think this scheme has is like effective and is just like an inch from working because it hasn't looked close. But at the same time, I don't know how much of that falls on the players, how much of that falls on the execution. There's certainly a balance. It's not all on the players, um, but I don't know if it's I don't know how to find that balance. Do you have any insight there? Yeah, I mean, the power play discussion is just so fascinating because uh, it is important to note that changes have been made. Like system decision making things have been implemented mid season here as you're watching. So if you go back and you watch kind of the first six or seven games, the drop pass was almost the exclusive zone entry play for the Red Wings. They've kind of shifted more recently almost to a center cut entry where you've got a guy who starts on the opposition's blue line. And as the defenseman kind of rushes the puck up the ice, he starts to creep towards the middle, creates a lane on the backside for you know, the guy who's the potential drop pass recipient to cut up if he needs to. You get a little bit of extra motion there. I think the Wings have had a little bit more success with that. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right, Max, that the drop pass, other teams do it very successfully. I mean, there's plenty of work out there. I've done work on it. I think there's articles on The Athletic from me uh, doing long video analysis of the drop pass. You can go back and find work from Eric Parnas, who's a uh, analyst for the Colorado Avalanche his whole special teams project. He devoted an entire series to that. Bottom line, teams are successful at doing it. I think there's an article I wrote sometime, maybe four or five years ago. I don't even remember anymore at this point, uh, comparing the differences in drop pass styles between having a single guy back for drop pass versus having two guys back on the drop pass, which is actually what Jim Hiller used to do uh, with the power play back in 2014, 2015, when the wings were the best power play in the league. And that was kind of another option, but I think importantly, the the moral of what I'm getting at is changes have been made. System changes have been made. So now the challenge comes down to, is it a lack of execution of a system that we see that works on other teams with other players? And is this simply a, the skill's not there, the decision-making's not there in the moment by the players? Or are there further optimization schemes that can be done, you know, from Dan Bilesma, from Jeff Blaschel, to put the players in better situations. I think there was that was certainly a valid critique early in the season when we saw a lot of perimeter passing. We yeah. saw, you know, no real passing lanes available because of lack of handedness. 
Now, again, granted, you were missing your entire second unit there, um, but there was a lot of issues with the way that was set up. More recently, they've made changes to the entry plans. They've made changes to the end zone scheme. You're seeing a lot more use of the slot. You're seeing a lot more of a crash the net approach, um, but you're also still missing the guy who scored the most power play goals for your team and Tyler Bertuzzi. So I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm going to leave you is I think there's valid critiques that there's maybe more system optimization that can be done, although a lot has been done already in the season. And then I think the rest of it, you kind of have to say that the decision making from the players maybe isn't where it needs to be. Um, and that's why you don't see the same success that you do with other teams running the exact same play. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, like you you watch um, like like Chicago would be a pretty good example of a team that, you know, they have a guy like Patrick Kane, who I think can make a lot of this happen just because you have to be so aware of Patrick Kane, no matter what he's doing, he's going different spots in the offensive zone. You see him, you know, on, on his kind of spot on the flank, but you also see him come up a little higher when he needs to. And, you know, you do hear, you know, I think uh, some some calls for more movement on the Red Wings power play, and I do think there's something to that. I think, you know, especially when when one of your big weapons is Anthony Mantha's one timer, if teams are able to kind of pack it in and and just get enough shins in the way, at some point it gets really hard for Mantha to get that thing to where it needs to be. Um, now, what does that movement look like though? Like that's a very fair question. Like you don't want just Dylan Larkin circling the zone and letting the rest of your team play four on four or something like that. You don't want too much crossing over happening to the point that um, guys aren't where they need to be. But but you you do basically want something to happen where at some point some member of the of the penalty kill has to leave their little box that they sit in. And once that happens, then you open up those cross seam plays. Then you open up a shooting lane. And and then ultimately, when you crash the net, you got to prayer it at getting a rebound um, onto net before it just gets simply cleared away. I think that's a big issue. And and to me, I think the entries and and frankly face off sometimes some, some nights it depends. Um, but just in terms of getting possession in the offensive zone would solve at least half of this. Like I think if you get set up more, then screw it. Philip Zadina and Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi and Dylan Larkin are good enough hockey players that they are going to score goals with enough time in the offensive zone together. Um, I do think there was some kind of forcing the one man, the one timer going on too much early in the year. Um, but broadly speaking, get set up enough times and you're going to get enough chances that they will equate to to goals. And I think that if, if I was going to put one thing above all the others, it's that just get in the zone and get set up. But if you ask me to tell you how to do it, I don't know. And that's why I don't want to I don't want to lie to anybody and, and, and give them this false idea that it's this one quick fix. I don't know that it is. It could be. But uh, I, I have a hunch that if it was, they'd have done it by now, because I promise you they're as mad as they're as mad and sick of hearing about it as anybody out there. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think it's a quick fix. I think there's a lot of different things that you and I can throw out. Um, obviously, uh, I don't think either of us. I'll, I'll speak for both of us here. Max have the same knowledge as the guys actually coaching this. Um, but that being said, it's, it's tough. It's not an easy, it's not an easy fix. There's a lot of different things to consider here, but I do think at the end of the day, the Red Wings have the personnel to do this. They just need to continue to go back to the drawing board, continue to reevaluate, continue tinkering and don't settle for, uh, you know, what they've got right now and just hope it gets better because right now what they're getting is very different than what from what we're seeing at five on five, uh, where they at least are playing really well and not getting results. I don't think the same can be said of the power play. 
Yep. Yep. I think that's right. All right. Um, we don't have to spend a ton of time, especially on the Nashville series, because, you know, it, it's been a while now. But what stood out to you about it? Um, you know, obviously you get the game in there that um, may best exemplify what the Red Wings want to do. And that, that being game two against Nashville. Game two or was that game one? The second game was the four two win. Yep. Right. So so it's a four two win, and and really it, it kind of looked more like a four one win based on the flow of play. Nashville gets one late, but um you know it, it exemplifies exactly what the Red Wings want to do. Not all the goals are pretty goals. Adam Ernie and Luke Lindenning both score scored what I would call cheap goals, but you know they weren't kind of cheap for for them to get there. Adam Ernie has to stick handle through traffic. Luke Lindenning has to be possessing the puck and get it into a shot where something like that has to have a prayer going in. Uh, I don't think most goalies are going to are going to let either of those goals in more than one to two percent of the time. But, uh, you know, you, you, you get enough chances like that. You get yourself into the position to take advantage of those breaks when they happen. And every once in a while, you'll get two in the same game. And, and the rest of it, I thought was great. Anthony Mantha, that was his his laser snipe game. I forget how the first goal happened, but nevertheless, the Red Wings were, were heavy on the forecheck. They controlled possession for uh, for a lot of the night. Uh, and I, I even though I don't think their uh, expected goals number ended up being crazy. It was like 53.8%. Yeah, it wasn't crazy, but uh, they were in control. Yeah, I mean, that that was a really good game from start to finish, you know, from the wings. I do think they had a little lapse there where in, in the third where Nashville was kind of able to to counter yeah. a little bit. But, I mean, honestly, that was a great game from the fourth line. I mean, you're right. I think really the only goalie who tends to give up those kinds of goals is Pekka Rene. I mean, that Amirni goal was kind of close to a uh, amateur version of a Datsuk goal that he scored against Rene years ago. Very similar move. You know, Rene tends to play a lot with his upper body and tends to want to move his upper body in the direction of the shot, as opposed to being positioned, you know, prior to it. And that's why you see goals like what Ernie scored, what Glenn Denning scored. Those aren't shots that usually go in. I think the Fabry goal, that was a great play by Philpola behind the net. That's right. To, Fabry. to center that um, to Fabry in front. Obviously Rene doesn't have a chance on that one, but you know, that's the kind of game Detroit's got to play. They, they really limited Nashville's opportunity to do, anything they had a couple of guys outside uh larkin and mantha chip in glenn denning in a big way i mean prior to that game he had he hadn't had a point in 42 games uh um, three and then he gets three and then for adam ernie he hadn't scored a goal in 36 games and he right. got a goal there so it's like you got secondary scoring that you don't really get really tertiary scoring in in detroit's case and so that's the kind of game that if they can get those bounces continue to ex- you know exert their system on other teams, that's the wins that they're hoping turn their direction. Um, however, it would be a lot easier if that power play just scored a couple goals. Yeah, I was just going to say, crucially, they actually carried it over. Like it was not one of these like flash in the pan games of every once in a while this is going to work. They put it right back on the ice against Chicago two days later. This is Monday night. Uh, and it looked good. Like it looked like, Oh, you know, as I'm watching it, even as they were trailing, I was thinking, man, they are out, out playing Chicago. They tie the game. And I kind of, you know, with Patrick Kane on the ice, I think I did predict to Larry Lage of the AP that, that Kane would score the, uh, the game winner late or an OT. I was not correct about that, but you do always think like that's when he tends to pop up. But I thought the Red Wings earned that win. And when Anthony Mantha got his late breakaway, I thought, Oh, this is might be it. I was really, really pulling him. In fact, that was, probably one of the games I've been more invested in over the year because of how well, you know, Detroit played at five on five. I mean, there, that was a, 
a great game for them to pull out. And it's kind of disappointing that it, it ends on a sour note, which I think left a lot of people frustrated. You know, uh, you, you have the three on one that doesn't go your way. Um, you know, you have the the play where a lot of people are lamenting Zadina not shooting. Uh, I think it was a totally reasonable play to pass back and, and try and set things up there. Um, however, you know, the play ends up not working and then Philip Peronic kind of late in the shift makes a, a little aggressive pinch that ultimately backfires. And so definitely leaves a sour taste, but I think it's real important to step back, look at the big picture. This is a team that's playing well right now in spite of not getting the results they want. They're still missing the guy who is arguably the best player for them over the first 10 games or so, you know, continue to sustain this momentum. And I think you'll see some good things happen uh, for the Red Wings. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So what you just said, I think, is a perfect lead into our main topic for the for today, which is also based on one of your tweets from last night. You had a great night on Twitter last night, buddy. I mean, <laughs> it was uh, it was much needed because I was getting real tired of everyone getting so mad at the team. And it was like, <laughs> all right, we're just going to we're going to start firing off some stuff here. You were you were very good on Twitter last night, and uh, and what I what I thought struck the chord with me is you had a tweet about, and we might just call the episodes the five stages of, of an NHL rebuild because you hit this so hard on the head with with how this goes and and the cycles that it goes on and and in particular how the cycles aren't the same length like it's not two years stage one two years stage two two years stage three whatever. So why don't you introduce this concept and, and let's just spend like 15 minutes, 20 minutes or whatever talking about this, how it applies to the Red Wings, how it might apply to some other teams around the league. Yeah, I mean, the tweet uh, in its gist was uh, I was watching a lot of people get really frustrated at the Red Wings for blowing it in overtime. There's calls for the coaching's head, calls for the players' heads. So so the tweet basically says there's there's five stages to a rebuild and we've rapidly shifted into angry about playing well and still losing after experiencing the play so bad, I don't want to watch phase last season and the, no, they're still competitive. I promise phase prior to that. So, you know, then I followed it up by saying, I'm very much looking forward to when we have, this team is definitely a playoff contender phase. And then subsequently the, no, I think you're overrating this team. They can't be a cup. They can't be a cup favorite. Um, And so I think when you're thinking about how these line up with the stages of a rebuild and you apply them to the Red Wings, the whole we're still competitive phase is basically the crux of the Red Wings from 2013 to 2018. I think on an episode long ago, one of the things I said was the worst thing that could have happened to the Red Wings was taking Chicago to seven games in the 2013 playoffs. I think that was honestly the thing that gave them the false hope that they could be competitive. You know, that's the season after Nick Lidstrom is retired, Brian Rafalski is gone. That's your chance to start tearing down and rebuild. Instead, you know, in a shortened 48-game season, you take a juggernaut Chicago team to seven games. You were up three to one in the series. You just about closed them out in game six uh, before giving up kind of a handful of goals in the third period of that game. 
Uh, and then you lose game seven in overtime on a ricochet off of Nick Cronwall that goes past Jimmy Howard. You know, that that one really set Detroit down this path to believing they're so competitive. That's when you get the Justin Abdelkader extension. That's when you get the 2016 offseason where you give contracts to Franz Nielsen, Thomas Vanek, Steve Ott. You re-sign Glenn Denning for four years, home for five years, to Kaiser for six years. You know, it's just... Because why wouldn't you? You're right, still contending. Right, we're yeah. still contending. We're still competitive. This is a team that is able to compete despite, you know, 2015-2016, you scored only a four goals against Tampa in five games. You lost in five to them there. And you head into 2016-2017 with really no better expectation. And then in that season, you, you come away with 79 points. Uh, and you're just like, wow, yeah, okay, we missed the playoffs by a fair bit here. But then you had that lead into 17-18, where, again, they're still approaching the season as being competitive. Now, the 18 trade deadline is where I think the realization sort of hits that, okay, we're not competitive, because now you're you're dealing Thomas yeah. Tatar, you're dealing Peter Morazic, you're making those moves ultimately a little too late. Because then you get to 18, 19, and you still are stuck in this holding pattern. You're still making weird moves. You go out and sign Trevor Daly for three years. That doesn't make a lot of sense to do at that point in time. Um, but ultimately, you sort of like stagger your way into this. And then finally, 1920 hits. And now we're here and, okay, they're really bad and I can barely Well, work. hang on, hang on. Let, let's pause because I want to go yeah. into that that stage one and, and yeah. do a little bit uh, of, of of more on that. Because number one... Uh, I would argue that this is the most important stage of the rebuild. Uh, it's the it's the most avoidable, uh, but for that reason, it's also or but 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 uh, sorry, but for the reasons that you mentioned, it's also the most understandable to be in denial about. Like like you have these players, you have Datsuk and Zetterberg, and you're saying, how can I not try to keep my playoff streak alive? How can I not try and get everything I can out of these two? players that I cannot just go replace. You can have the, 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 uh, maybe not first overall, but you could have like the second overall pick in most drafts and not find a Datsuk or a Zetterberg. Like, and you shouldn't expect to, I mean, if you have first overall, you probably got like a 40 to 50% chance of finding one of those two guys. But if you don't, I don't know that you're finding one. Those are two outstanding players who were near the top of the NHL. Datsuk's a no doubt hall of famer. In my opinion, Zetterberg should be a hall of famer. I don't, quite know you know there's there's different considerations that go in terms of hardware that he might have a harder time getting but um i think he is a hall of famer in, in my opinion um if you, when you have those guys i can forgive uh trying to, to push it in for a while but at the same time that's how you look back and say oh god this was two years too late three years too late uh and i think that makes it a fascinating dynamic and i think there is a very obvious team who is in this spot right now, and that's the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, I mean, that's literally the team that parallels this. I mean, you look at their moves prior to 2019-2020, uh, and really during the season, they just don't make any sense. And they're doing the same thing Detroit did, you know, back in 2013, 14, 15, and 16. I mean, you're going out, you're you're still going out and getting Jason Zucker, but you're giving up a conditional first-round pick in Callan Addison. Like, you're, you're going out, you're... Uh, signing uh, Brandon Tanev for six years. I mean, that's a move that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, you're going out and giving a first round pick to Toronto uh, to get Casper Kapanen, a, a move that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so, you know, you go out and you trade for Mike Matheson, who's on a really long contract. That doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just, it was move after move after move. And, 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 you, 
it's easy to buy into it. It's easy to say, I have Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang. I need to do everything I can to win with them one more time, right? And what you end up doing is you mortgage your entire future to do that without realizing that there's there's not that high of a likelihood that you're going to pull this off. I mean, you're you're not taking stock of where your team is. You're not taking stock of the supporting cast. And you're hoping those elite guys can still be elite at the highest level. I mean, when we were talking about Zetterberg and Datsuk in 2016, you're talking about a Datsuk who is, you know, 37, 38 years old, you know, really starting to slow down. And is Henrik Zetterberg that uh, has had a bad back injury and is trying to deal with kind of still playing through that. And even though they're demonstrating that they're still effective, they're not 2007, 2008 Henrik Zetterberg and Pavel Datsuk that just blew away the league. They're, they're 10 years older. They're 10 years you know, more beaten up and they're not going to drag you forward in the same way that you think. Uh, and so I think Pittsburgh is the classic team right now that is doing this. We actually just witnessed this a few years ago with San Jose, right? They just tried to do this with Joe right. Thornton and Patrick Marlowe. Yes. They go out, they make a big, they Patrick. almost did it too. Right. They almost, they almost they, did it. But now <laughs> you look at where San Jose is and you go, Oh, yeah, this is uh-oh. now. Now San Jose is in the oh god, they're now so Eric bad. Carlson, right? Is six more years at however many million dollars. That's exactly it. And so there's teams all around the league that still continue to make this mistake. I think you're going to see Washington make this mistake uh, with Alex Ovechkin this off season. So it's there. It's just going to keep happening. Um, but in Detroit's case, it's why we are where we are right now is because the most important thing to dealing with this problem is recognizing you have the problem. Yeah. And that's, for some reason, the hardest hardest thing for NHL GMs to figure out. I, I honestly don't even know that it's complete ignorance. I think it is, in some cases, like a calculated, like, okay, I might have a 2% chance of doing it this year or a 4% chance of doing it this year. But once I start this rebuild, it's eight years of hell Honestly, not that unlikely that I lose my job halfway through this rebuild because rebuilds are painful and fans get testy and ownership gets antsy and shit happens. And, you know, Ron Hextall got fired halfway through the Flyers rebuild and uh, oops, it was a very good rebuild. (laughs) And you fired the guy who did it halfway through because it sucks to be in that spot. Right. So uh, I can understand. I think there might even be some just kind of this makes sense for this GM because They've got star players, and once they tear it down, like, ooh, his future gets a little dicier. Like, as long as you got Sidney Crosby and, and Evgeny Malkin or Chris Letang or whatever, you are you're you can really go to ownership and say, look, we can win. We got, you know, two of the best players of this generation and a very, very good, you know, defenseman here. I don't see why we shouldn't go add one more of this, and, and that first-round pick's going to be in the 20s anyway, and this and that, and whatever. And it, it, it only comes back to bite you when that first-round pick's Andre Vasilevsky and whatever. And, and this is what happened to the Red Wings. Like the 19th overall pick, they trade for Kyle Quincy. Oops, that's Andre Vasilevsky. So not that the Red Wings would have necessarily taken him. And this, you can do these things all day long. But um, so that I think is, is a, is the most fascinating stage of this because it is the most understandable. It's not totally delusional, but it is the phase that when you wake up the next day, you have a hangover from hell of of that one more uh, one more drink, I guess, <laughs> that you tried to take out of the fountain of uh, of elite talent, and you wake up the next day, and that is a harsh, harsh wake up call. That's phase two. Yeah, and so then phase two is 
oh God, like this is, they're really, really bad. And I can really watch be a while. Right. And then you go, oh shoot. All right. Let me, let me buckle up because I need to prepare myself to deal with this. And that was, that was Red Wings fans in 2019, 2020. That was the realization. Now, not every team is going to have a, oh God, it's this bad um, season as bad as Detroit did uh, last year. But the, the fun part about this stage is this can come in what many ways feels like it's coming out of nowhere, right? Because you look at San Jose and all of a sudden, bam, that was a team that traded the first round pick to Ottawa thinking we are going to be a playoff contending team. And that pick is a top five pick for Ottawa the very next season because they did not play everything correctly. And it's the same thing with teams dealing with Pittsburgh right now. Those There's just that chance that Pittsburgh straight up bottoms out. And I think that's what people continue to hope for. And you saw the same thing here with Detroit. It was a little bit more gradual. You know, you had 16, 17, 17, 18, 18, 19, all in the 73 to 79 point range. But then, bam, 1920, bottom falls out. You had 39 points in 71 games. Wow, that got really ugly really quickly. And so then <laughs> that kind of sets the stage for, okay, this is going to be wild. I think 18-19 falls in that too, Eight, right? Like I think 18, it does. 18-19 and 19-20. Yeah, I mean, I think 18-19 definitely falls in yeah. the, they're really bad because they were losing a lot of games. Now, 18-19, you may not have felt the same way because again, in 18-19, they were among the league leaders in one goal losses. Everything felt yeah. competitive, but they yeah. were still losing a lot of games. And then 19-20 is, oh God, they're getting blown out every night. Uh, and, you know, this is where Ottawa is right now. This is where San Jose is right now. This is where the Kings are right now. Yeah. You know, and this is where Detroit is trying to climb out of right now. And, the you know, misery. your goal is to make this not that long of a session. You don't want this to be as long as the worst still competitive phase, which is arguably the longest phase here. You want this to be very quick and move out of it. Ottawa still hasn't figured it out. They're still stuck here. They've been stuck here for three years. They're hoping that Tim Stutzla and, you know, uh, Thomas Shabbat and those guys are enough to get them moving forward, Brady Kachuk. But fact of the matter is they're still stuck here. You know, they're 6-5 win against the Maple Leafs notwithstanding. Uh, they, they haven't figured out how to climb out of this hole. Whereas I think right now, where we are right now with Detroit, they are starting to figure it out. And I think they're kind of shifting into the, this is frustrating to watch because it feels like they're so close, but they keep losing. And I think and that's, I think that's a midseason shift. Yeah, because the the first two two three weeks of this, it certainly felt just like last year. Uh, I mean, I, I think the first the first four games actually accepted the first four games. I think you know they, they they go two and two. I thought they played okay hockey for the most part. I didn't think they got they looked as dejected as they had last year. But they go on that whatever it was six or seven game losing streak, and I completely agree that my my brain with with, with the fan base and what they were saying, my brain was oh, okay. It's it's another last year. Yeah. And then and then something shifted after that Tampa game. Something has shifted. Yeah, I don't know what it was, if it is that player's meeting or whatnot. I mean, hell, I dragged out the worst goals differential graph because I thought I was going to need it. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you took it out of, out of storage. You know, we, I, it was sitting there in the Dropbox, and I was like, all right, I guess we're going to have to pull this code back out <laughs> because I'm not expecting to use it this year, but here we are again. Uh, in fact, their goal differential was worse than last year's team through the first eight games or so. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the switch is flipped. And now you're kind of sitting here going, man, this is really frustrating to watch because it feels like they should be winning these games, but they're still somehow losing these games. And I think this 
this kind of phase and the next phase that we'll talk about after this are the most dangerous phases for a team. Because this is where you can get overconfident in what you've already accomplished and you can start taking steps that don't fit. And or just tired of, of right. what you haven't done. Yes. Like you just might get tired of like, I can't stand this anymore. I want to do something drastic. I want to trade my best player because it's just I can't stand it. Or you go out and you make a big free agent splash because you're right. like, I yes. have to do something. I yes. have to do something different. And that's the scary part here, because in this phase and the next phase, if you do those things at the wrong time and everything doesn't line up, you're going backwards. You're not going to continue yep. going forwards. And this is what we've seen a team like Edmonton to, right? You go out, you get Connor McDavid. You're like, all right, you know, I'm feeling good, but I'm going to trade Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. And then I'm going to, you know, go out and sign Milan Lucic for six years because right. these are moves that I think are moving me forward when they're moving you backwards. They're not letting yes. you go in that direction. And that's how Edmonton, you know, is still stuck in this kind of purgatory. Uh, I think Vancouver's another team that we can throw in there with some of the bizarre moves they've made. Uh, Tyler Myers. Right. The Tyler Myers deal doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know why you did that. Uh, you know, that's a that's just a move that doesn't make sense. And had you played that correctly and bided your time, and now you have Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, like you could have been in a better spot, but you got impatient. And yeah. so that's the key here for the Red Wings is stick this out. You got to be like Carolina. Carolina stuck it out for a while. They were in purgatory. They went 10 years between playoff appearances. Although you can kind of argue they didn't really start to rebuild until about 2014 in the correct sense. So they really went four years from kind of that start point to playoffs and really playoffs to conference finals in the same season. Uh, that's, that's what you're hoping for is that kind of turnaround. But if you jump too quick or you make the wrong move, you're in trouble. You're dead on because Vancouver went from this place where where they they get this this huge coup. What everyone hopes for in, in their draft is they got Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson in back to back drafts, and they jump right to what we what we'll introduce in a minute, which is stage four, which is this. Oh, like you're uh, you're underrating this team. Like this team's ready. Like it's it's time. It's time because number one, people are so sick of uh, it not being time, and number two, because there is something. There's something legit happening here. Like there's momentum. So they go from that. And then they make that Myers signing just to be sure, just because they really don't want to they really don't want to stay stuck in purgatory if they can avoid it. And what it actually does is it throws them back into stage three. It throws them backward because you lose Jacob Markstrom, you lose Tyler Toffoli, you lose and some of these are just GM decisions. They they probably could have signed at least one of these guys, but they 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 don't sign any of them. And part of it is because they have this giant Tyler Myers comp, uh, contract on the books. Uh, and if, if you have that flexibility, maybe you keep Jacob Markstrom, who, by the way, looks outstanding in Calgary. Maybe you keep Tyler Toffoli, who I think has eight goals just against the Canucks this year. Yeah. In like four games. Yeah. He is, he's absolutely killing it. I mean, he's and, killing them. And then so, Troy so Stetcher, maybe you right? Get to keep one of these guys. And they, you let Troy Stetcher walk. Right? They didn't qualify him. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You let him walk. Uh, you know, all these things that you do because you, you tried to go a little too quick. You tried to, to, to solidify yourself in stage four a little too quick. And oh, no, now you're back in stage three. Yeah. So, uh, you know, let's just talk about stage four now. Stage four, which the Red Wings aren't at yet. But uh, I'm trying to think of a good team who's just getting there right now. Um, Where you're trying to basically say, you know, so stage four, as you're thinking about it, is like, OK, this team is definitely a playoff contender. Like yeah. it's a team that's 
found a way to dig out of their rebuild and is now a team that you're discussing in the context of, okay, I think they can start contending for a playoff spot. You know, it, it, it's tough. Arizona was maybe the team I was thinking of How about last the year. The Rangers are a team where it's interesting because you, you could make the argument that they were more of a stage three team in the sense that they may have jumped too early. So you go back to last season, right? They win the second overall pick. They draft Capo Caco. Then they go out and they sign Artemi Panarin for seven years, Jacob Truba for seven years. They give Chris Kreider seven years. You know, they're throwing money in every which direction. They buy out Kevin Shattenkirk. Uh, you know, they do all these different things. And uh, where did they end up? Well, they ended up winning first overall in the lottery with Alexi Lafreniere. But now I think the Rangers are a team, maybe in the next year or two, you're going to start seeing them in that phase four because now I think by virtue of winning back-to-back lotteries, they are going to be a team that's, uh, you know, there maybe Colorado last season or the year before uh, yeah, would have been good. a good example of this. Carolina, yeah. maybe this is, two this years is your before. actually a playoff team. Like you're not, yeah. you're not a, a pretender. Like you're like, okay, this, this, okay, now we're we're getting out here, and and this is good. So I would agree. The Rangers, the Rangers, uh, they didn't even make the uh, the actual playoff. They made the bubble, but the Canes swept them. Right. And it doesn't look like they're going to make the playoffs this year. So that's, that's fair. They're not there yet. But I, I agree they could get there soon. But that's a good that's a good point by you. Yeah, I think the Avs and the Canes in the last maybe yes. three or four years are the teams that maybe best embody this. The Canes are beyond it now. Yeah, right? yeah. Canes are, now yeah. you're talking about the Canes and Avs as being the Stanley Cup contenders in, yes. in the stage five, although their fans will not believe that, which is the whole point of stage five. Uh, but in that stage four, I think if you look at maybe the 18-19 the Canes, that team didn't have – Huge expectations. I think a lot of people expected him to sneak into the playoffs as a seven or eight seed, not be the wet, you know, a conference finalist. Yeah. Um, and same thing with Colorado. Philly? Philly's a good yeah. four team. Philly's another good four team, you know, when they've added in these pieces with Nolan Patrick, Travis Konechny, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, Joel Farabee, uh, Carter Hart. They've started to really move into this. Yeah, this team's definitely a playoff contender. I don't think anyone's walking out and saying Philly's a cup favorite. But this is a team that's definitely a playoff contender and will be for the next, you know, couple of years. And they've done a good job, you know, coming back from the Drew, you know, Voracek phase and smoothly entering this Travis Konechny, Joel Farabee, uh, you know, phase with those guys, you know, Ivan Provorov, Shangasas Bear, you know, Carter Hart. They've done a better job smoothing that transition over. Yeah. Okay. I like that. All right. So then you, we already teased it. Stage five. This is the completion. This is why you did the rebuild. It's so that, you know, you get to uh, this place and your team is finally actually really, really good. It's a contender. You don't know if they're going to win, but it's a top six to, to eight team in the league. Maybe even better than that. Maybe it's a top five team. Um, but let's say, let's say six to eight right now. And, and they're so good, and, and you've been through this harrowing Stockholm Syndrome experience that now you yourself don't even want to believe it. You don't want to let yourself think that it's actually a cup contender. And so now you're telling people that they're overrating this team because you've, you've, you've seen them disappoint you for already six to eight years, likely, by this point in the rebuild stage. Yeah, my favorite example of this is Dom Lucision having to defend the, the Maple Leafs as being... <laughs> the best team in the North or arguably right. the best team and being a cup contender. Like he has to defend the Leafs as three. When you look at them, they're, you know, aside from their collapse against Ottawa the other night, they were, they're a very good hockey team. They're yes. in fact, they've just happened to run into Boston the last couple of years and then Columbus, you know, but they're, they're a team that's a cup contender this year by virtue of how the divisions are aligned. And 
Dom has to defend years. it. Yeah, most years they're a cup contender. Yeah. It's just they happen to play in division with Boston and Tampa. Yeah, and and so Dom has to defend that that decision to put him there. I think Colorado's another team that belongs there. Carolina's a team that belongs there. Where it's it's fans. I mean, Colorado's the odds-on favorite to win the Stanley Cup, and yeah. I still think you'll have a lot of their fans just not truly buy it, not truly believe in it because. You went through hell to get here. Colorado was one of the, you know, 16, 17 Colorado, one of the worst teams the last 20 years. So that's how quickly you can get back here, but you have to have patience. Yes. Okay. So the, uh, the, the logical question that everyone listening is going to want to know is number one, are we sure the Red Wings are pivoting into stage three to which my answer would be no, it's very possible. They're still in stage two and they haven't turned that page into stage three yet. But I would say from a fan, uh, from a fan comment standpoint, based on what I'm receiving, certainly seems like a fan base that's more uh, frustrated by not eking out games than one that is, uh, you know, just convinced that this thing is never going to end. Personally, that's that's my read on the fan base. Yeah, I would have the same read. I mean, I have so many people frustrated with, you know, tactics, coaching, players, things along those lines because they're not getting the same results that they want to see because the team is playing so well. Uh, recently. So, you know, fingers crossed that if this is what gets the team into stage three, then I think the wings are in a really good position where, you know, potentially they still draft high this year. You have Moritz Sider, Lucas Raymond, Jonathan Berggren all coming in, you know, potentially the development of Theodore Niederbach is good and they have so much cap flexibility. They are really in position to do what Colorado and Carolina did and go quickly from stage three to stage five. And that's the challenge because not many, not every team is going to make it to stage five. Not every team's even going to make it to stage four. A lot of teams shoot themselves in the foot. So that's where I, you know, it's important for Iserman and his staff to continue to be patient because they're set up really well to accelerate through four and five, you know, if they're truly in three right now. If they are truly in three, which again, I'm not 100% positive that they are, I could easily see this season going off the rails still, and then you're just going to look at this as kind of a blip on on the broader kind of um, arc of, of 2018 through 2021. Um, and, that, you know, that, that's a long but not unusually long stay in, in the pit of misery, so to speak. Um, but if if this is stage three, then what I will say is you're also probably looking at next year in that same phase of a, why is this not getting better yet? Come on, come on. Um, maybe if there's, you know, you know, any major additions or changes or whatever, maybe that's enough to kind of get people to, you know, feel like something's different and it's not just the same old, same old. Um, maybe, maybe that is something that kind of um, comes into play as, as an outside factor, but I, I think there's still going to be a bottom five, bottom three team next season too. Now they're going to have a lot of turnover. They're going to have a lot of contracts expiring. I believe Nielsen has one more year, but um, like that's a contract that could be bought out by that point. Like one year, you're not too worried about a buyout. Um, Dana DeKaiser, similar kind of situation. He's going to have one more year, but if he's really not healthy, um, which right now is appears to be the case. I mean, he could be in the lineup. He's available to play, but he's not at 100%. And the Red Wings are, are at the point with him where they they uh, waived him. And right now he's on the taxi squad. And that is because they, they want the roster flexibility over the over just having him you know, on the active roster. And it, it's not a massive deal. Like, I don't think this is like a seismic shift or anything for the Red Wings. Like, you, you very likely still see Dana DeKaiser this year. They can call him up any day as long as they call him up before a certain time. It might be 5 p.m., from the taxi squad and he can play and that's no problem. 
Um, but it does tell you that they're, you know, they're not close. He's not close enough to being in the lineup over Christian Juice or Mark Stahl right now um, that they, you know, are having him on the active roster right now. And so, um, anyways, that was rambling. Darren Helms' contract's up. Uh, Valtteri Filippolis' contract's up. Patrick Nemeth's contract's up. John Merrill's contract's up. I think that's one that I would renew if I were the Red Wings. Um, Christian Juice is going to be an RFA. You can go either way on that. He had a great goal last night. Um, who other four? Luke Lindenning's up. I would renew him. I know you wouldn't uh, at a certain number at least. Um, but you get the point. Like They're going to have a lot of flexibility. They could bring in some guys, and maybe it's a little less painful next year. But uh, everyone knows about the 2022 draft class by this point too. And I think... Red Wings fans are going to be attuned to that as much as any fan base in the league. They want Shane Wright or they want Brad Lambert or whatever. I don't know if they know about Rucker McGordy yet. Um, he's the big American guy in that draft, and he's got some really impressive numbers so far at the NTDP. That's a draft you really want to pick in the top three or four. And uh, the Red Wings, I don't think, are going to be necessarily uh, out of that position to do so in a year. Yeah, I completely agree. And And if they play their cards right, um, you know, next season you bring over Lucas Raymond, Jonathan Berger, and more at Cider. Cider probably in the NHL. The other two, you know, likely AHL, although they may sneak some uh, NHL time in depending on how they do in Grand Rapids. You know, you get through the season, potentially you luck out, you have a nice, you know, you end up picking in the top three and you land one of those guys. Um, that's your chance. That's your moment, right? If you're, you're likely picking top five this season, you're picking top three that season, and then you can walk into the 2022 free agency. And at that point, you can think about doing something similar to what Carolina did. You know, Carolina goes, they land uh, Andre Svechnikov with a second overall pick. At that trade point, for Dougie. right. They go and they trade for Dougie Hamilton. They go and sign Calvin DeHaan. You know, they make the moves necessary to bolster them. I mean, if you're you're Detroit. Alexander Barkov's a free agent. Philip Forsberg is a free agent. Like, are these guys and that Nashville might be entering a rebuild and, right. and might not be? Yeah. And so, are those guys you go out and you drop money on in that season? All of a sudden, now you're like, okay, this is a playoff contender, right? And that's the next step. That's the that's that stage four. And so, I think there's a lot of possibility that you could see the Wings moving into that stage four as soon as the 2022-2023 season. And the nice thing is the wing should have that fallback plan where if things don't go in their direction, the 2023 draft still has great guys in there. I mean, Mitchkoff is an outstanding yeah. player. He's arguably, arguably in the conversation with Shane Wright as the best guy, you know, Rucker McGordy and those guys as the best prospect in the next three years. Um, so you have that fallback where you keep yourself in that kind of stage three. But the important thing is don't force your way out of these stages, because I, I do think you have to make sure you do things at the right time and, and just trying to accelerate it is what's going to kick you. It's going to, it's going to hurt you in the long run. Thanks for uh, do it, being willing to do that, that big elaboration on that. That's, that's how my brain works entirely. I love to think in kind of phases like that and in logical like organizations of, of how these things work. Uh, and when I read that tweet, I, it just, you know, it set off all these light bulbs in my head about how, how the NHL world works. And I was immediately thinking of, you know, a team or two for each, uh, each, each single phase that you mentioned. I mean, Nashville right now seems to be crossing that bridge from phase one to phase two and realizing, oh God, there is no chance that this roster is currently assembled is going to get it done, uh, 
time to time to try something new. And uh, and I think Pittsburgh is not quite there yet, but they might be within a year or two. I keep thinking Boston's about to be there, and and then they're just not. And maybe they're just the exception to the rule. But the Red Wings were kind of the exception to the rule for a long time too. And so, uh, you know, it, it it comes for everyone. And I just love that this this way of organizing it that, that you came up with. Yeah, I think it's just a fun way to think about it. And and honestly, for everyone who's watched this team for the last ten years, it should resonate pretty well if you if you think about it yeah all right let's do a couple mailbag questions and then we'll get out of here how's that sound works for me all right um phil roberto asks this is such a good question because we all we often hear about 200 foot players how come some players who are good workers are complimented as 200 foot players when they're limited offensively uh and 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 so i think what he's getting at here is if they're 200 foot players, like why aren't they, you know, why aren't they offensive too? Like you're only talking about the defensive half of the ice. I've got a theory about this, but I want to hear your answer first. I have honestly no idea why (laughs) that is the case. I mean, that's the thing. That's literally something I think I've said for five or six years is like, you can't call them 200 foot players if they don't score. Right. (laughs) So Phil, I would love to know the answer to your question here because I certainly have no clue why that's the case. I think I have your answer, so that maybe that'll that'll clarify for you as a as a user of this phrase and a user of this phrase on players who who I think meet Phil's criteria here. So I would say, and this is a semantics thing. Maybe this is just some writer bullshit, and I deserve to be punched <laughs> in the face for it. But uh, I would say that what what you're talking about is a two way player. That's a player who contributes at both ends, offensively and defensively. I think it was a 200 foot player as someone who plays in all parts of the ice, like not necessarily someone who scores, but someone who's going to play behind the goal line and winning four checks and someone who's going to be all the way back down behind the other goal line on retrievals on, you know, puck support on defense. So that's how I think of it. I think of it as they play the whole length of the ice and they're doing things over the whole length of the ice that'll, that'll help you win, not necessarily scoring. Whereas I think a two way player is someone like Dylan Larkin, who scores goals, does things for you on offense, um, but also is is impactful on defense. And I th- I know that that's kind of splitting hairs a little bit, but I do think there's a difference in terms of just 200 foot as they, they do things over the full ice, goal line to goal line, um, versus two way, which is they impact both both parts of the game. See, I would I would normally agree with you, but then I run into the scenario where just about every center is a 200 foot player. Because in just about every defensive scheme, they're the ones responsible going goal line to goal line. Yeah. Uh, so Robbie Fabry is a 200-foot player. You're making a good point. But, you know, I, I – uh, yeah, you're making a good point. <laughs> I think my counter would be, like, and doing it well. Like, you know, like I, I think that, you know, Luke Lindenning doesn't score a lot of goals, but he does it well in the offensive – zone behind the goal line like like in terms of that those those hard areas uh, of the ice where it's you're behind the net or you're right at the crease or, or you're on the cycle like these are things that he does relatively well he's a good retrieval guy he's a good four checker he's gonna battle well and he's gonna do it at both ends like he does it you know what i mean like but i i get it like i do get what you're saying in terms of like I, you're right there are centers and and plenty of them frankly that i wouldn't say are 200 foot centers in in, in terms of i don't think their defensive zone impact or their their play in their own, you know, slot and lower end um, are all that exemplary. So this is a very valid point by Phil. I'm not trying to dismiss it. I'm just trying to explain why I think it happens. So so maybe building off of this, maybe the best definition we can come up with is players who are good at both forechecking and backchecking. 
That's basically, yes, that's basically my definition. All right. Yeah. So then I can, I can buy that because I don't know that I would call Fabry strong at necessarily, like, I don't think of him as the picture. And of like Adam Ernie, right? He's, a, yeah. he's, he's one of the players that Phil, you know, he listed a few players who he is curious about this. And Adam Ernie, I think is a perfect definition. Like, even though he's not a center, like you can kind of count on him to be physical, kind of right down at the the lower, you know, lower third of the circle in the D zone and, and, and make a big hit. But he's also going to be hard on the fourth. Like that's kind of how I would explain it. And I, I could very well be wrong in doing that. But I think that's the that's like the intuitive explanation from me. I, I could buy a definition that's based on forechecking and backchecking. But then what my view would be is if that's how the definition is set up then that's not as valuable as how I view a 200-foot player in my head, uh, which is the yeah. guy who contributes um, by scoring and preventing goals on both ends of the ice, which is how I tend to think of it. And I tend to think of it in like a like 200-foot game. Like, like how is their 200-foot game? Like, can, can you count on them in every area of the ice? Like, there's players that you wouldn't say, like, you want in every situation. You don't want them in the corners in the offensive zone, even though they're a great offensive player. Like you kind of want them at, at on the slot or at the top of the circle or whatever, you know what I mean? So like even from that sense, like it, you're you know you're 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 exactly right. If you call someone a 200 foot player, there is an implication that that's like, and they're good at all 200 feet, and you know that doesn't have to just mean length of the ice. Like you know maybe you know it, it, it's a shorthand phrase and it's going to get misused. So I think that's probably a big part of this is just. You know, you're looking for a, a quick shorthand descriptor of a player. And if the main thing they do all is forecheck, backcheck, you're right. They're 200, <laughs> they have good 200 foot game. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think people have co-opted the, the phrase for to mean a lot of different things. And so it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, uh, which can make it tough to really assess how valuable being labeled a 200 foot player really is. Yeah. I mean, if, if the argument here is I should do it less on players who aren't offensively uh, you know, like pr- productive, I'm open to that. Like that's, it's, and I'm probably I think not he asked that question specifically to get you to stop using the phrase. To, to just shut me up. <laughs> Phil, Phil said, Max, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but I think it's a great question. It's it such is. a good talking point. Yeah. All right. Um, what else we got here? Brian says, when is Eisenberg going to make his first true hockey trade? Not a cap dump or for futures or a flyer and a reclamation pro- project. He cites Fabry and Perlini. Although I think you can make a case that Fabry for De La Rose was somewhat of a hockey trade. But nonetheless, when do you think Eisenberg makes his first hockey trade if it's not that Fabry deal? And uh, what do you think? What kind of deal would you, would you like to see? So I think there's two ways this goes, and we can tie this back to our phased conversation. Yeah. So number one, this team is not actually in phase three. Yes. We we get through the season. We quickly see that this team is actually a phase two team. In that case, the first trade that I think is made is him dealing Anthony Mantha for somebody. And so you're you're starting to think about your roster. Yes, you just signed Mantha for you know four years uh, at a good cap hit, but from an age standpoint, he is going to start to age himself out of being in your kind of core as you move forward. Um, you know, and, and again, in this hypothetical, the wings regress. They don't continue to play as well as they've been playing. Let's say they don't, they somehow end up with the sixth overall pick as they're cursed to have in a relatively weak draft. Um, you know, you, in that situation, I think the earliest I could see him making a legit talent for talent trade would be dealing Anthony Mantha for potentially somebody younger a younger prospect that's um, 
you know, quite high, kind of a similar move to what Minnesota did with Jason Zucker for a first plus Callan Addison, that kind of talent plus pick uh, situation. Beyond that, if we then take the scenario where Detroit's in phase three, uh, then I don't think you see this deal until Detroit's really ready to go to phase four, which may not be like 20 until 2022, like we just talked about. Okay. I, I can dig that. I, I have no idea. Like I, you know, like hockey trades also just aren't that common in the NHL, even among good teams. Like Carolina's Dougie Hamilton deal, I think is a pretty good example of it. They, they ship out Hannafin and Lindholm, who I like both of those guys and they get back Dougie, who's the best player in the deal. But I really would love Elias Lindholm on my team. And, and I, I'm perfectly happy with Noah Hannafin on my second pair too, frankly. I think Calgary is pretty happy with that. But Carolina also gets a guy who was on my NHL All-Star ballot last year, I believe, in Dougie Hamilton. And that's a top six defenseman in the league. So, you know, I think that's a great example of a hockey trade. And it comes at basically the exact moment you talked about them shifting uh, phases. And so I think that's that's a pretty relevant one. Um, Wyman856 says, who are the Red Wings prospects most exceeding your expectations and who are most falling short of them? Uh, I mean, the ones this year who are really exceeding expectations, I think, are Sider and Berger. And I think that's mm -hmm. um, the pretty obvious answer. Uh, both of those guys have taken a huge step forward. Berger in particular, we just needed to see what he looked like when really healthy and and playing his game. And, and you're absolutely seeing that this year. Um, you know, guys that have taken a step back. Um, I think, you know, one for me is Philip Larson. I think you and I talked about this on the last episode or maybe the episode before that. You know, he really started to take the step back last year, but now again this season, uh, really struggling in a lower level league. Uh, he's got to find his game here soon because I think that's a, you know, that's going to be a huge problem for him. And then, you know, a more recent example is Cross Hannes, uh, Red Wings third round pick this past year, really struggled. I mean, he's bouncing all around between the WHL, USHL, has not looked good. Numbers don't look good. Uh, didn't really take, you know, he was a guy billed as a little bit of a playmaker to a certain extent, good passer, good setup, man. Haven't really highly seen skilled. it. Yeah. Highly skilled. Haven't seen any of that. Um, and so that'll be a kind of frustrating miss if, if he doesn't pan out for the wings, given that, you know, he's a third round pick there and you want those guys. Second round pick. Second round pick. Sorry. Yeah. Second round pick. Yeah. Uh, so you really don't want to be missing on those ones there. Yeah, you know, Bergeron is a guy who, you know, I've tried to slow the hype train for people a little bit just to not let expectations get out of hand, but he is definitely my answer. Like he is, you know, Cider, he's having an unbelievable year and I don't think anyone could have expected it quite like this, but he was also a stud. Like you, you knew it from what he, what he did in the AHL last year. You had a pretty good feeling he was going to go over to the SHL and play really, really well. He's gone a step beyond that. Like he he's one of the, you know, best performing prospects outside the NHL right now. I don't think that's unreasonable to say, but Bergeron is a, a totally different case where he's coming off two different years of major injuries. And I was getting to the point where it was like, Ooh, I don't know if like, you know, is he going to be able to stay healthy enough? Is he going to be able to put this all together? And he is turning in just a, a gem of a season. You know, he's at a point per game, still have some questions about what is going to translate and what that will mean for his role. But you know, you, you put up a point per game at age 20 in the SHL, and I've got a really hard time saying you're not going to make it and that you're not going to make a difference when you do. And now is it, it's a, I still don't think it's like a top line difference, uh, personally, just because, you know, he, he still doesn't have the, the, the shooting threat to, to I think, be that kind of all around, uh, danger that you need. And, and he's going to run into some problems as he tries to get to the middle of the ice. I think, um, 
as he comes to North America, but he's a really legit prospect and he deserves all the credit in the world for the season he's put together. It's been outstanding. Yeah. I think if you're looking to bill him, uh, for a guy, a guy I really like to compare him to is, is almost Yuri Hoodler to a certain extent for the Red Wings for a really long time on those Red Wings cup teams. Hoodler was kind of a second line, third line forward that would also play on the power play. And I think that's the role that you're going to see from Jonathan Berggren is, you know, on a good team, he can be that second line, third line depth scorer that is kind of a highly skilled. Hoodler didn't really have a great shot. Um, he had a good one. He just didn't shoot it all that often. So I think his shot's maybe a little better than Berggren's. But same kind of playmaking mentality uh, and and will give you really good support on a good team. And Hoodler had the one huge year in Calgary, in Calgary where he where he was like a point per game player just about. But but most of the time he's in that, you know, 30 to low 50s range. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable expectation in terms of points for Berggren. Like once he comes over here, yeah, like don't expect your like 60 point first line player. But, you know, year, year to year with some fluctuation, I think you're going to see somewhere between 30 and 50 points would be my guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. And 50 might be high. I don't know. But, you know, I, I think it's still fair with what he's done in the SHL to give him a little bit of, of uh, a benefit of the doubt in terms of numbers. Yeah, especially if you get power play time. So On the downside, um, I, I my thing cut out when you said your first one, but were you talking about Svechnikov or Chalowski there? No, actually, the first one I said was Philip Larson. Philip Larson. Oh, yeah, that's definitely fair. Um, but, you know, I think it's fair that to say that well, Chalowski and we didn't really get to see a lot, and Svechnikov was injured. But I, I do think those are two stock down prospects in the sense, just because the Red Wings haven't really given them a look, and and you can argue that that's as much on the Red Wings as it is on either player. I certainly I might argue that, but um, you know the fact that it's happening this way does tell me that you're less and less like. Oh, as we're as we're recording, Svechnikov got bumped up to the taxi squad. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Oh, okay. Um, he got called up to taxi squad. I don't know what that means necessarily. Like, you know, they sent Smith down and I assume that's just because they want to get him playing. So it, why would they call Svechnikov up, you know, unless he's going to play, but you know, I don't see like that's the likeliest thing in the world. So I'm very interested in that. And if he does play, maybe, maybe this, maybe this comment by me changes, but I think Svechnikov and Shalowski for a couple of former first round picks, uh, it's trending in the wrong direction, not even necessarily because of their play, but just because it hasn't broken through. And I don't think that's all on them. I think it's, you know, certainly the Red Wings bear some blame for that too. Um, but it's it's the reality of the situation. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, let's find a good one to close on. Uh, Doug Beckman asks, do you expect Steve Eiserman to be an aggressive seller at the deadline? And if yes, who would the likeliest names to be moved be? Yeah, that's that's tough because, I mean, you look at the, the roster and I mean, there are guys you certainly could sell. I mean, we talked about Bobby Ryan being a guy before the season that if he was like, yeah, let me go chase my ring. Um, you know, Eiserman could certainly move him in that respect. I don't know that Bobby Ryan nets you a big offer really. Um, you know, and outside of that, I mean, certainly you could look to move Mark Stahl. Um, he's played reasonably uh, for the wings and maybe some team is interested in taking him on if the wings retain some salary. Uh, but other than that, I mean, unless you're prepared to move Jonathan Bernier, uh, who's going into ex expiration, I don't really see a lot of guys that you're going to deal at the deadline, unless you're going to like make a huge move and, you know, move an Anthony Mantha or something like that. 
Two that stand out to me, um, number one, Bernier, because I think, you know, the the need for goaltending this year has been underlined, and there's enough good teams out there who I think could could be, like, you know, maybe not cup contenders, but, like, could make a little bit of a run if they had better goaltending. I think Edmonton falls in that category. I'm not yet sold on um, Vanacek in Washington, although he, he has played pretty well. Uh, Pittsburgh would fall into that category for me, especially if they're of the mind that they really want to keep, uh, you know, squeezing every last drop out of this orange. I don't necessarily know if it's in the Red Wings' best interest to trade Jonathan Bernier, especially if you're not going to get something like, you know, I, I would want at least a second round pick if I was the Red Wings for him. Um, but you know, it, I think there's there'll be enough goaltending demand that he he should have a market. I think the same same of Bobby Ryan. Um, Maybe a little less, like, in terms of positional, like, you know, most teams have forwards, but most teams are also always looking for a little extra scoring at the deadline, and he doesn't make a whole lot of money. Teams aren't going to have big cap problems acquiring him, and he's proven, like, and and he's an unreal locker room guy, and so he's not the kind of guy that you're going to have any worries adding, but I also think the Red Wings with Bobby Ryan are kind of in a position where if they keep him, he's good for them for that same reason. Like he's, he's a good guy you want to have around. Um, and if, if you're not getting a great offer, what's the point? And, and maybe Bobby Ryan's feelings impact that too. Like maybe if he wants to go change, chase a cup contender that weighs into things, or if he really, you know, would, would rather kind of stay with, with this group and, and try to see it through a little bit or potentially even extend. I think that'd be a key part. If the Red Wings aren't going to trade him, they should be saying, well, you want to do another year. Um, so that would make some sense for me. I'm trying to think if there's anybody I'm really missing. It's tough. I mean, you, know, you look at the roster. I just don't see guys that Mark Stahl rehabbed his yeah. game enough to get into this conversation. I mean, he's played pretty well over the last few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a guy that, again, if you're willing to retain, um, you could probably find somebody who will take him. Yeah. The, the cap number is a big concern there. You're right. And obviously that's why the Red Wings, you know, got a second round pick to take him. I mean, if you, if you ate half of it, that's 2.9 ish still pretty high but he's a veteran defenseman he's got playoff experience i mean it, it wouldn't stun me luke glendening did you say luke glendening i didn't say glendening i mean he's a guy that you know again if someone's willing to pay for him he's the best face-off man in the nhl so far this year i think uh i don't know if people have heard that stat yet uh, i i don't think anyone has heard that as we've been <laughs> watching the fox sports detroit broadcast i mean it, it's legit it's a legit question i mean he's an assistant captain on the team um, I think I I would resign him if if it were me, um, and so for that reason I don't think I, I think I would hold a pretty firm line on on Luke Lindenning, but I'm sure teams will call. Why wouldn't you call? Yeah, I mean let him call, and I would trade him for anything that's a third round pick or better. So I think I'd hold out for a second, but you know I, I think the line for me goes at fourth, like like it's seconds and thirds. Um, you got my attention, fourth <laughs> and beyond. You know, unless it's a guy who I've got no no time for. I don't know, but I know I, I know that's a problematic opinion in terms of what the numbers say about the value of a third <laughs> versus a fourth. But yeah, I mean, there's functionally no it's, difference. It's my bird brain talking. Oh, it's it's all good. <laughs> you know what though? Um, depending on how this next draft shakes out, and I we'll we'll wrap right after this. I promise. Um, if if they end up moving it back like a meaningful amount. I really want as many second and third round picks as possible. If I'm a GM, you're going to get so much extra sample and, and all these guys who you look at. And in most years, like you're like, Oh shoot, Arthur Kelly, should have gone first round. Oh shoot. Nils Hoaglander should have gone first round. And you can tell like, you know, a year or sometimes less later. 
you might actually get that benefit beforehand. And if you're a team like the Red Wings, that's going to have one of the first two or three picks of the second round. That's a big, a big coup. And if you're a team like the Red Wings, that's going to have three or potentially more if they pick up another one um, picks in the second and third round or four, I think right now uh, in the second and third rounds for this next draft, five. Um, I want as many of those as possible because you're going to get some clarity and you're going to snap up a guy who might have gone in the fourth round who now looks like he should be a borderline, you know, first or second rounder. Yeah, I think either direction. Maybe not fourth, but second yeah. round, You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, either way, I think you want him. Whether it's you're going to do a draft where nobody's seen anybody, you want as many yeah. shots at the dark. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or if you are going to do a draft where you get extra time to see people, then yeah, you yep. still want as many shots at the dartboard. Absolutely. I agree completely. All right. Uh, with that, we will close. I know we ran long today, but I really wanted to do that whole uh, rebuild phases thing. And, and I had a blast. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, if not, I'm sure you'll tell me. 